right, we are back. Let's take a plunge into where technology meets politics meets human affairs. Tom Leister, a mathematician at the University of Edinburgh in the UK, wrote an opinion piece for New Scientist I would like to quote from. It was titled Ethical Calculus. The subtitle was Mathematicians Must Face Up to the Fact That Their Work Is Being Used to Enable Mass Surveillance. Said the author, for the past 10 months, a major international scandal has engulfed some of the world's largest employers of mathematicians. These organizations stand accused of lawbreaking on an industrial scale and are now the object of widespread outrage. How has the mathematics community responded? Largely by ignoring it. Those employers, the U.S. National Security Agency and the U.K.'s Government Communications Headquarters, GCHQ, have been systematically monitoring as much of our lives as they can, including our emails, texts, phone and Skype calls, web browsing, bank transaction, and location data. They have tapped internet trunk cables, bug charities and political leaders, conducted economic espionage, hacked cloud servers, and disrupted lawful activist groups all under the banner of national security. The goal, to quote former NSA Director Keith Alexander, is to collect all the signals all the time. The standard justification for this mass surveillance is to avert terrorism. U.S. officials repeatedly claimed that mass surveillance had thwarted 54 attacks, but the NSA eventually admitted it was more like one or two. Its best example was an alleged $8,500 donation to a terrorist group. He notes, we may never know exactly what mathematicians have done for these agencies. GCHQ does not comment on intelligence matters, which is to say anything it does. But revelations by former NSA contractor Edward Snowden suggest some possibilities. For example, we know the NSA has undermined internet encryptation. Certain encryptation methods used pseudo-random number generators based on the theory of elliptic curves. These are used to create keys for encrypted information, ensuring only the sender and receiver can see credit card details, for example. Snowden revealed that the NSA inserted a secret backdoor into the widely used elliptic curve algorithm, allowing it to break the encryptation. That could not have been done without sophisticated knowledge of the mathematics involved, the details of which were recently described by Thomas Hales of the University of Pittsburgh in the Notices of the American Mathematical Society. He notes, mathematicians seldom face ethical questions. We enjoy the feeling that what we do is separate from everyday world. As the number theorist G.H. Hardy wrote in 1940, I've never done anything useful. No discovery of mine is made or is likely to make directly or indirectly for good or ill the least difference to the amenity of the world. Noted Tom Leinster, that idea is now untenable. Mathematics clearly has practical applications that are highly relevant to the modern world, not the least internet encryptation. He does note that apart from the nuclear physicists who back in the 1940s knew they were working on atom bomb, Mathematicians today working for the NSA or GCHQ often have little idea how their work will be used. The author notes that at a bare minimum, we the mathematicians should talk about this. Maybe we should go further. Eminent mathematician Alexander Bellinson of the University of Chicago has proposed that the American Mathematical Society sever all ties with the NSA and that working for it or its partners should become socially unacceptable in the same way that working for the KGB become unac- became unacceptable to many in the Soviet Union. Strong words in the field of mathematics. We'll see what comes of this, if anything. And I got a quote from this piece by Craig Timberg from the Washington Post. 
shows that no one is in charge of the internet. It said, while users see the logos of big multi-billion dollar companies when they shop, bank, and communicate over the internet, nearly all of those companies rely on free software, often built and maintained by volunteers to help make those services secure. Does this sound like something written by The Onion? piece talks about how it is open SSL, a piece of free software created in the mid-90s and still used by companies and government agencies almost everywhere. It notes that the possibilities for data theft were enormous. At the very least, many companies and government agencies will have to replace their encryption keys and millions of users will have to create new passwords. Even on sites where they're accustomed to seeing a small lock icon that symbolizes online encryption. Piece quoted Christopher... So Hogan, who was the principal technologist for the ACLU, is saying, this was old code. Everyone depends on it. And I think that just everyone assumed that somebody else was dealing with it. And again, this sounds like the onion, but apparently the group that was actually dealing with it consisted of fewer than a dozen encryption enthusiasts sprawled across four continents. Many have never met each other in person. Their headquarters, to the extent that one exists at all, is a sprawling home office outside Frederick, Maryland, on the shoulders of Sugarloaf Mountain, where a single employee lives and works amid racks of servers and industrial-grade internet connections. The total donations to the group last year in support of work that keeps billions of dollars in commerce and countless personal secrets flowing safely across the internet, less than $2,000. But they did note that the group does also make some money from consulting. They went on to quote Steve Marcus, the president of the Open SSL Software Foundation, and he's also a former federal technology contractor, who I guess is the guy working out of his Frederick area house. He said, when you consider how complicated and significant a piece of software it is and how critical a piece of infrastructure it is, it is kind of mind-boggling. It's such a thin thread. He goes on to note, the internet grew from research by the Defense Department in the late 1960s. There's never been a master plan. One group built the web browser, another search technology, another payment network. Still others make the encryption technology that is increasingly demanded and scrutinized in the aftermath of revelations by former NSA contractor Snowden about the power and pervasiveness of internet surveillance. He concludes by noting that such problems were supposed to be less likely with open source software produced by groups that publish the entirety of the computer code online for all to see and scrutinize for flaws and potential improvements. Except that didn't seem to work out so well with the Heartbleed. All right, let's let's take the camera as it were and pull back for a longer shot of this whole thing about technology. And if you're going to go on the internet, you're going to have a need for encrypted uh, communication, but you know, let's just take a look at the technology right now. I, I'm, I'm disturbed. So I'll borrow a four-panel piece from This Modern World by Tom Tomorrow. In the panel, two people are working on their smartphones. The guy says, I've got eight likes, three friend requests, and a notification. As he's going tap, tap, tap. The woman says, I was retweeted seven times and favorited twice. Second panel, the guy, my comment was upvoted at Reddit. The woman, somebody just reblogged my Tumblr. Third panel, the guy, one more second, I need to send a quick text and answer this email. The woman, no problem, I want to Instagram this selfie and check into Foursquare. 
Then in the final panel, you see that both the man and the woman are inside a glass container being observed by large aliens, one of which is saying, Fascinating, the devices appear to stimulate the reward centers of their tiny brain. Said alien number two, Apparently they'll keep pushing those buttons indefinitely. And it is taking over our lives, people. When I, and I first heard about somebody texting while driving, I thought it was the most crazy asinine thing I'd ever heard of. And then about a year later, when I was driving one day, I caught myself trying to work out a text as I was, was driving and just thought, oh my God, have I gone over to the dark side? Well, a lot of people have for sure. A new study cited in January, conducted by observing 151 drivers behind the wheel, has quantified just how risky various cell phone activities are. This research was conducted by people at the Virginia Tech Transportation Institute, making assessments by monitoring for a year the cars of 42 new license holders and 109 seasoned drivers with cameras, accelerometers, GPS devices, and other senses. What did they find out? Experienced drivers who try to dial a number are two and a half times more likely to get in a crash or near crash. The crash risk for that same activity goes up more than eight times if you're a novice driver. One key finding, experienced drivers get better at handling multiple tasks, although they still face much higher risks. New drivers really can't handle any distraction. Said Bruce Simons Morton of the National Institutes of Health, when you're inexperienced, you're not very good at multitasking. When you're not very good at determining when, under what driving conditions, to engage in these tasks. Turns out for new drivers, just reaching for a phone causes a seven-fold increase in the risk of crashing or a close call. Texting was found to increase the chances of crashes or near crash by almost fourfold. How did we get to the point where we would do things this dumb? And apparently our cell phones are producing some bad parenting. Pediatricians at Boston University took a look at uh, how adults were getting distracted by their smartphones instead of caring for their kids. His conclusions came from a study based on detailed anthropological observations of 55 sets of caregivers and children while they were dining out. The findings paint a sobering picture of the inattention and more often the harshness kids suffer when adults are engrossed in their phones. 40 of the caregivers observed used their smartphones during the meal, noting the most absorbed texters and swipers rarely looked up to check on their kids while those who used phones only to receive calls typically were more engaged with their charges. Many of the ignored children responded by acting out in an attention-seeking way, enraging the distracted adults. They noted that what stood out was that in the subset of caregivers using the device almost through the entire meal, how negative their interactions would become with the kids. Adults in this group answered kids in curt tones, yelled, and even kicked them under the table. And I had a conversation with a physician friend of mine the other night where he talked about not being on Facebook. I had to compliment him for his resistance. For although Facebook can be entertaining and interesting and I've had a chance to hook up with a lot of old friends there, it is also, at times, one hell of a time waster. Peace in the Economist last August noted that using the social network seems to make people more miserable. To quote from the Economist, Those who have resisted the urge to join Facebook will surely feel vindicated when they read the latest research. A study just published by the Public Library of Science, conducted by Ethan Kroos of the University of Michigan and Philippe Verdun of Leuven University in Belgium, has shown that the more someone uses Facebook, the less satisfied he is with life. Evidently, the researchers recruited 82 Facebookers for their study. 
These volunteers, in their late teens or early 20s, agreed to have their Facebook activity observed for two weeks and to report five times a day on their state of mind and their direct social contacts. These reports were prompted by text messages sent between 10 a.m. and midnight asking them to complete a short questionnaire. When the researchers analyzed the results, they found that the more a volunteer used Facebook in the period between the two questionnaires, the worse, he reported, feeling. They claim that a volunteer's sex life has no influence on these findings, nor did the size of his or her social network, nor did his stated motivation for using Facebook, his level of loneliness or depression, or his self-esteem. The doctors in the studies therefore concluded that rather than enhancing well-being, Facebook undermines it. Well, clearly more research needs to be done in this area, but isn't that curious? When it comes to, you know, what makes... Happiness? Well, let's take a quote from W. Baron Wolf, who said, If you observe a really happy man, you will find him building a boat, writing a symphony, educating his son, growing double dahlias in his garden, or looking for dinosaur eggs in the Gobi Desert. He will not be striving for happiness as a goal in itself. He will have become aware that he is happy in the course of living life 24 crowded hours of the day. And yes, Mr. McMillan, I realize that uh, people do have to sleep. But I'd be willing to bet if you spend those 16 hours engaged and satisfied with life, that those eight hours in dreamland will be more salubrious as well. That's it for today's program. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We'll see you next week at the same time. <laughs>